0: Welcome back to part two of Jonah four, four through eight. So let's open in prayer. Father, we just pray you'd make the word come alive to us, Lord. Make it come alive, and what we know not teach us, and what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, we're going to read the words to Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, which is a great hymn, and just just rejoice and listen to the words. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. O, oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Uh, all these hymns from the past, their lyrics are such good theology, and they're always just wonderful to read. And if y'all don't have any of the um, Robert Morganson sings, My Souls, that's a great, they have, I think, two or three editions of it, different ones, and it has the song on one side, and then it has about the writer on the other. And it's, it's wonderful. Anyway, so let's start off by reading John 4, 4 through 8. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, and it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah 44 4-8. I submit to you for your consideration the following three habits to consider when we're in a Jonah-like situation, accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, when we find ourselves in the midst of these low states of our, like our protagonist was in. We will call them our frame, our focus, and our fix. This is following Paul's directives in Scripture, found first in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That was Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Our frame. Consider if you are tired or hungry or suffering. Any physical pain. Our beings are made up of body, soul, and spirit. And when one is out of whack, it oftentimes makes the other two follow suit. Amen? To be sure, our bodies can scream out and take all our attention. Get a migraine, for instance, or a throw up bug. Chronic pain and depression also can cause helpless feelings, as well as we oftentimes seek to pull ourselves up by our own power. Or strength, which is not capable of doing it. And that's simply not going to happen. We are to get through these times by the power of the Holy Spirit, which indwells every believer in sweet Jesus. I'm reminded of God's kind treatment toward Elijah. After he had had his Mount Carmel experience high, he went from the mountaintop to the pit. Of the valley in the 0.9 seconds many of us can say amen to that haven't you just had some kind of wonderful tie and then all of a sudden you're back flat on your face particularly when it comes to spiritual matters remember our bodies are simply jars of clay and when our bodies are off kilter our minds often think things are helpless and hopeless but we must remember nothing is helpless or hopeless with God. We find in 1 Kings 193 3-7, Elijah was afraid of this of Jezebel and ran for his life when he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough. Lord, ever been there? He said, Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. At once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. That's First Kings 19, 3-8. God sweetly supplied his prophet with sleep and sustenance. And on that, he was able to travel 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of God. Our focus, where are our eyes? Are they on our circumstances, or are they on our Savior of our circumstances? Are they on our own strength, or are they on God's omnipotent power? Scripture tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. This will enable us not to lose heart when we are in circumstances far beyond our ability to endure and not of our choosing. The writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The psalmist Asaph, who had almost slipped until he got his focus right and looked up, we see in Psalm 73 is another perfect example. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant. Where are his eyes on the arrogant? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Hmm. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered The sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakens, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And to earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But God, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. That's Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph 1 through 28. I'm going to read to you is a thing by John Bloom. It's called Leave uh, behind the weariness of bitterness And it is weariness for sure. Amen. The gears of God's justice sometimes grind slowly, so slowly that we may not even notice them turning during our brief sojourn on earth. We have even begun to wonder if they're really turning at all. Amen. Asaph writes, Truly God, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, dot, 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 but what? But Asaph had really struggled to believe that. Amen. His biblical theology and history told him God is good and God is just. But as he looked on the way things evidently operated in the real world around him, Asaph read a different narrative. He watched unashamedly wicked people prosper, seeming to avoid the hardships most of humanity is subject to. He watched them violently oppress others without God seeming to lift a finger to stop it or protect the oppressed. He watched them in their luxuriant ease blasphemy God with apparent impunity. Like many suffering Christians today, he watched while the godless flourished hard on those he loves. Meanwhile, When Asaph looked at his own experience, he couldn't help wondering why in the world he was fighting so hard to keep his heart clean and his hands innocent, only to find himself stricken and rebuked by God every morning. What's with that? Hard on those who love him and seemingly easy on those who hate him? That looks a lot like turning justice on its head. Asaph's feet had almost slipped, had almost stumbled over whether God truly is good to Israel. He could have said, as Teresa of Avila allegedly has said, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. Thus Asaph is endeared to us, an ancient friend who understands our predicaments. He understands the hard experiences of living in what can look and feel like a world of inverted justice. When bitterness takes root, we know deep down God can't approve of this inversion. The fact that humanity shares such a massive consensus regarding what's just and unjust bears witness to what God considers just and unjust. Philosophers call this the moral law. Theologians call it God's law that is written on our hearts. Even the unjust bear witness to the reality of what they desperately try to conceal or rationalize if their power is removed and they are held to account for their actions. But when they aren't held to account, When they do as they unjustly and wickedly please, and God does not intervene, we try hard to understand. And like Asaph, we find it a wearisome task. We can become pricked at heart and embittered in soul. Here's the real danger. The indignance we feel towards injustice, the way we're supposed to feel towards injustice, can metastasize into bitterness in our souls toward God and his apparent lack of concern and willingness to take action against injustice this can turn us brutish and ignorant leading us to fall away from god or to distort his word into saying what it does not say because in our lack of faith we cannot bear it few things drive us to twist the scriptures like the problem we have with evil and the pain it can cause to us and those we love this is a root. Bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, as Deuteronomy says, that defiles many. As Hebrew warns us in Hebrews 12:15, a bitter root that grows up and defiles many. So what do we do when, like Asaph, our hearts are pricked and we feel the bitterness in our soul that makes us question if God really sees, if he cares, if he's really in control, if he really exists? The remedy God provides us against the brutish ignorance of unbelief is simple, but it is profound and it is pervasive. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This can sound so trite, so cliche, when what we want from God is answers and more immediately action. This is not cliche. This is the Bible, all of it. The Bible is God's book of justice. The whole thing is about God's justice, about his ultimately making every wrong right and exhaustively settling every account of every moral agent visible and invisible to us that has ever perpetrated even the smallest injustice. Nothing will be missed, for God will by no means clear the guilty without fully satisfying his holy, righteous law, the one to which all our consciences bear witness. God is working with a timetable towards this end that is long, and our lives are short. We may not see the justice needle move much during our time under the sun, that does not mean it all that it is not relentlessly and fearfully moving toward the terrible, unfathomable destruction of evil. It will come. We must trust him with all our hearts and not lean on our very limited perspectives and understandings of the real world. If the catastrophe of Eden teaches us anything, it teaches us that we are all ill-equipped to manage the knowledge of good and evil the bitterness of soul that Aesop describes is a warning that it is time to hand god back the fruit before it bears something poisonous and bitter in us if the eucatastrophe of the cross of jesus teaches us anything it teaches us that god does not take injustice lightly it cost him the death of his son that is he is, in fact, willing to go to extremes we would never imagine in order to fully settle accounts. At the cross, God's righteous unwillingness to clear the unjust kisses his righteous desire to pardon the repentant unjust and be at peace with them. Praise him. It is the miraculous moment when the righteous judge takes upon himself our unrighteousness, paying for it in full that we might become his righteousness. It is a place where God becomes both just and the justifier of the unjust ones who put their faith fully in Jesus. This is how God treats his friends. He gives his only son for them in order to give them eternal life. It is God, it is this God, and the remembrance of his mercy foreshadowed in the old covenant that Asaph, when he went into the sanctuary of God, recognized. Then his perspective on justice changed. He saw the long-term end of the short-lived, unrepentant wicked. And that's what we need to see, too. God was not inattentive or inactive as they brazenly oppressed and blasphemed. Truly, you set them in slippery places, You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He saw the mercy in his being stricken and rebuked, for it was this very discipline that kept him from going astray. And he saw an approaching judgment upon those who were not being led to repentance by the kindness of God. He remembered the long-term end of his short-lived afflictions. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. The same hope the Apostle Paul expressed. And when Asaph grew, gave up his wearisome task of trying to understand how God can let injustice and evil persist, and instead trusted God with all his heart, the bitterness left him. And out of the healing and refreshment he experienced, he exclaimed, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Our fix. What do we do? What do we dwell on when we are in a Jonah state of mind? Our circumstances or on God. What do we fix our minds on? Is it our problems? how we can get rid of what we do not want or get what we want? Do we fix our eyes on our own purposes and plans or on God's perfect truth and will? Often in our distress, we need to be reeled in and reminded of the simple yet profound truths of God's word. The promises of scripture serve as a balm to the weary soul and as the sweetness of honey to the mouth. To, re, to be reminded that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he is molding us into the image of his son, that he knows the intensity of the heat and that he sustains us and he keeps us standing even during the fiercest storms. All come the weariest of souls. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 15, five through 8 this is what the Lord said. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, um, who depends on flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no weary worries in a year of, dra- of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Never. It's Jeremiah 17, 5-8. He also adds in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I know them. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And, listen, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity we would do well to have some go-to verses stored in our hearts for times when we get overrun with emotions and pain and heartache it's invaluable the holy spirit brings these truths back to life as jesus has promised we will have tribulations not if god lovingly wants to care for his children especially in the wilderness of our lives As you lean and depend upon him, he will prove faithful always. God is honored when we approach his word as those that revive the soul and rejoice the heart, as those that are more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. The summary and culmination of Psalm 119's unashamed tribute to God's word is a great reward. He means for us to experience his words (coughs) as my delight in the joy of my heart, as the delight of my heart is kindling for the fires of our joy. God gives us, (coughs) choking, God gives us his own life-giving words to steady ourselves and the souls of others. David Mathis writes, Back to our story, Jonah was so distraught with emotion that he did not even reply to God's question. Instead, he left the city and built a crude shelter, perhaps from the tree branches, and just sat down in the dust in its shade. This was apparently giving Jonah a clear vantage point of the city. Perhaps he was hoping that God would answer his plea and judge the city anyway. Our prophet was simply unable to imagine that God would carry out His justice on a people deserving as so undeserving as the, excuse me as the Ninevites. He refused to accept that God would extend mercy and compassion to other people than the Israelites. He did not want them to be saved. He had made up his mind that God would not show them mercy, and he couldn't have been further from the truth. His actions appear like a sulking child. Obviously, he had forgotten that he, who also deserved death for disobedience, was mercifully delivered by God. For the second time in this book, Jonah abandoned his place of ministry. He left the city and sat down in a place east of the city where he could see what would happen. Without answering God, the petulant prophet stomped angrily off, clear out of the city. He missed so many opportunities by being childish and selfishly sulking. He could have taught the Ninevites so much about the one true God of Israel yet he preferred to wallow in self-pity, pouting because he wasn't getting his way. Much akin to the prodigal's older brother in the parable, he wouldn't go in and enjoy the feast. What a tragedy. He was the loser. It is when God's servants are means of blessing but to others miss the blessings themselves. God wants his word and his ways to land in the hearts of his people, meaning it is his desire for our wholehearted devotion and willing minds to do what he would have us to do. The way to the the mind is through the heart. In his heart, Jonah had a preconceived bias against the Ninevites, preventing his heart to beat mercy as the Lord said. Both reason and affections are crucial to loving God rightly he wants us to love him rightly god's ways to our understanding our mind are through our affections our heart those who do not find their delight in the lord will seek it in other places i saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which i ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the lord that's george Mueller. Unless some unusual obstacle hindered me, Mueller, he would not rise from his knees until sight had become savoring. That's a good way to be. Next, we discover God being slow to anger, again attempting to reason with his prophet. This time, God gave him a visual lesson. He erected an object of Jonah's affection, his creaturely comforts, and contrasted it with the object of his own concern, the souls of people. Now, which would you think would be more powerful? Remember John three sixteen through 17 and Second Peter 3, 9, speak God's heart towards the loss. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then in Peter, it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, 3, 9. Now we discover God rebuking Jonah again, but in this instance, not through a storm, rather by exposing the selfishness of his likes and dislikes. As a sulking child over the fate of Nineveh, he withdrew, went out of the city, and he sat alone and remained silent. He witnessed the Ninevites repent and reform, and he was not happy about it. The 40 days were now coming to an end, or had come to an end, and Jonah had hoped that it was Nineveh that was going to be overthrown. Then some other judgment would have come upon them that would be enough to save his reputation. So he made himself a booth of the boughs of a tree to wait and to watch. God knew that Jonah was very uncomfortable sitting in that booth he constructed. So he graciously provides a vine, a gourd, that would grow up quickly and cause it to grow into large leaves that would protect Jonah from the hot sun. How very kind of God is the prophet had so foolishly caused these problems for himself. Jonah was sitting in the shelter, fretting over the cold of the night and the heat of the day, and God looked on him with compassion and pity, as a tender mother looks on her contrary child. God's actions, of course, pleased Jonah, displeased Jonah, and made him very happy to be more comfortable. It was a shadow over his head to deliver him from his self imposed griefs, so that being physically refreshed, He might be better protected from the anxieties in his mind. Basically, so that he could think clearer. As we have stated, when we are in discomfort, it is hard for us to think clearly. Amen. Jonah was exceedingly happy over the gourd. A small toy will sometimes pacify a bad-tempered child. As the vine pacified Jonah. But God... Love, but God, had a teaching lesson for our protagonist in this. And the next morning, he prepared a worm to destroy the vine, his now treasure. And Jonah became unhappy. With the sudden loss of provision that God had made for his refreshment, his trouble returned. Sometimes our comforts spring forth like flowers and are soon cut down. We must not look upon God's little mercies and comforts expectantly or deservingly as he both gives and takes away for our good. Rather, we are to hold them with open hands and grateful hearts. God did not send an angel to uproot Jonah's vine, but a worm to strike it. He also prepared a hot wind to make the prophet feel the lack of the gourd. It was a vehement scorching east wind, which drove the heat of the rising sun violently onto Jonah's head. And he was therefore exposed to the sun and the wind, and he was miserable. Here is the biblical affirmation that God controls every single element of his creation and can and does use any element in it for his own purposes. They are his. Everything is his. I'm reminded of the story of the Exodus and what God tells Moses prior to prior in Exodus 3:16 through22. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, "The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, "I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt." And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, all their enemies, (laughs) a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Our God, but I know, God is speaking, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. And it went down just as God said. Of course it did. The combination of the hot sun and the smothering desert wind made our protagonist want to die even more it appears that those who love to complain should never be left without something to complain about that their foolishness may be revealed and corrected and if possible healed ironically jonah was selfishly glad for his own comfort but not for the ninevites relief from judgment as he had done in the depths of the sea, God was reminding Jonah of what it was like to be lost, what it was like to be helpless, hopeless, and miserable. Jonah was experiencing a taste of hell as he sat and watched the city. He who so foolishly caused problems for his own self was now wanting to die. Again, the prophet was so discomforted, first by Nineveh's repentance, And now by the loss of the shade from the vine, that he was ready just to give it all up. A simple test of character for us is to ask ourselves, what makes me happy? What makes me angry? What makes me want to give up? Jonah was a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, James 1 tells us. One minute he's preaching God's word. But the next minute, he's disobeying it and fleeing his post of duty and stomping off and sulking. While inside the great fish, he prayed to be delivered. But now he asked the Lord to kill him. (laughs) He called to the city to repentance, but he wouldn't repent himself. He was more concerned about creature comforts than he was about winning the lost, about his reputation over the salvation of others. (laughs) Ironically, the great fish Ninevites, the vine, the worm, and the wind have all obeyed Jonah. Uh, excuse me, have all obeyed God, but Jonah, his prophet, still refuses to obey. And he has the most to gain. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us not to, to do this. Help us to follow hard after you and to walk in obedience to your will. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that we can take these Truth and apply them to our lives so that we won't have to walk through these these situations, that we can we can learn from them rather than to experience them on a field trip, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for your love, and I thank you for your word. I would have perished in my afflictions had it not been for your word. And Father, I just pray that you would ta- help us to take it to heart and be a changed people for your glory and in our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Beth from Sharing Bread Ministries. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the written permission from Sharing Bread. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Sharing Bread. For additional information on Sharing Bread, you can look for us online at sharing-bread.com. You can find Bible teachings for adults and kids, links to podcasts and other resources to help you grow in the Lord. Again, that website is sharing-bread.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with Sharing Bread. Sharing Bread, laboring to grow up families in Christ.